Hello, and welcome to Film Couch, episode 8. In this episode, we're talking about Whiplash. I'm Joe, and on the other end of the couch is Nicola. Hello, everyone. Let's get into this. Whiplash is a great film, but before we talk about that, let's talk about how we're feeling right now. I haven't left the house in eight days. What about you? Uh, I think it's been like five days since I left. We just went to the grocery store and just came back. Yeah. And how are you feeling? Yeah, I miss Popeyes, man. That's like my immediate <laughs> answer. I miss fried chicken. They're not delivering. <laughs> no, they, they closed down all of that, man. Yeah, I mean, um, for, for those of you who are listening in the distant future, 2050, and this has been erased from history already. We're talking about the global pandemic of the coronavirus or the, the COVID, COVID-19. And we're in Peru. We're under lockdown. There's a strict curfew between the hours of 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. And we're just not allowed outside many countries. It's the same in many countries. In fact, today, it's March 23rd. Uh, the UK, did you hear about this, Nicola? Uh, no, I wasn't up to date on what the UK has done. Yeah, finally, Boris Johnson has put the UK under official lockdown today. Oh, really? Yeah. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Took his, took his time on that. It's, it is a little bit more um, flexible, a little bit more, mm-hmm. more lenient and not as not as rough as it is for most other countries. They can still go out and buy stuff. What, what was weird was, he said, parks are still going to be open. Parks will remain open for exercise, but gatherings will be dispersed. And everyone can go outside once per day to exercise. That is why people will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. Shopping for basic necessities as infrequently as possible. One form of exercise a day, for example, a run, walk or cycle, alone or with members of your household. Any medical need to provide care or to help a vulnerable person. And travelling to and from work, but only where this is absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. This doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, people can exercise at home. You can do cardio at home. You don't need to go outside to run, to exercise. Like what? how are they going to know if it's once a day for everyone who goes out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you can't, I don't know, you can't keep track of those things. But I thought he was like the one with the idea that, you know, m- most of the population is going to get sick, so they should just get sick. Yeah, this is why I think he, he delayed it, because he wanted a lot of people to get sick, but not mm-hmm. not everyone. He's trying not to, he doesn't want to overwhelm the NHS, the National Health Service. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he doesn't want... Um, I don't quite understand the idea behind herd immunity other than, because this is what he's aiming for, herd immunity, mm-hmm. where everyone is becomes naturally immune to it. And the amount of people that are going to get infected is kind of inevitably going to remain the same, whether people stay at home or not, apparently. So I think what the idea is, you try and reduce the amount, the, the rate of infection right now. Mm-hmm. At certain points in the future, you you let certain groups out. I don't know how they're going to handle it, but I think that the reason that it took them so long is because they do have a little 
not so secret plan, but a little strategy behind it, you know? Mm. But I mean, we were just talking about this before we hit record. Um, like, I don't, I don't feel too bad so far, eight days in. And how do you feel? I mean, I guess the experience has been a little surreal. Not, not oh, yeah. like a, I mean, just, just because nothing like this has ever happened in my lifetime. I think, yeah, it's safe mm-hmm. to say in, in our lifetime. Uh, it just in that sense, it's strange. Um, but otherwise, staying at home, I just, uh, I'd rather work at, at the office. But uh, here, I guess, you know, just trying to get the hang of it. And uh, and really missing Popeye's quite a lot, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, it's just, this is kind of really normal for me. This is my life, you know. Yeah. I'm always glued to my laptop. Um, I do feel, you know, after talking with people who are obviously in the same situation, I do feel really lucky to have <laughs> a, a wife that looks after me and, and cooks for us every day. That's that's pretty lucky. Of course, like taking those things into account, but but also just taking the fact that we we actually have jobs. I mean, your job, you know, is dependent on that on that dynamic. But aside from that, just being able to work from home. That's like a blessing in itself, especially under these circumstances. Surreal is definitely what it is. When I was listening to Boris Johnson's speech earlier, I was just, it was like, I don't know. It's like watching a film, man. You know, he's saying, inevitably, lives are going to be lost. People are going to be going to die. I'm not going to say that this is going to be easy, but we all need to come together and fight. The way ahead is hard and it is still true that many lives will sadly be lost. If you would have shown me this video last year and, 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 and said, this is going to be an, a genuine speech from the prime minister, I would have said, yeah, f*** off. <laughs> no, it's not. This is, this is, you know, next season of Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. It, it, man, it's crazy what's going on now. You know, looking out the window and you see just no one outside and the, the few people that you do see outside wearing masks feels like, you know, the pictures and videos that we saw circulating on social media from China, Wuhan, uh, a couple months ago. Feels like, feels like I'm in China. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, it seemed, uh, it seemed like a distant reality for us. That's, yeah. that's what's so surreal about it. I mean, honestly, uh, like my mom ordered a package from Alibaba like three months ago. Oh, yeah. And the coronavirus got here faster than that. <laughs> wow. And again, it's just something we saw in the news. And we saw, you know, in China. And then, uh, I don't know, I think later on, like a little bit later on, and we saw it in Italy and some other parts. But I was like, yeah, that's not going to come here. Learn some, some data today, some maths. So if you get the flu, you infect. Is infect the right word anyway? Can you use infect for a, a virus? I think so, right? But I mean, you infect, like, you get someone else sick? Or you transmit the virus to someone else? Yeah, because I refer, I, I think of infect, um, you know, it's connected to infection. And it's not an infection, is it? Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> um, I wish there was a, a, better ver- a, a, better, a verb for contagious, or even a noun for contagious. Anyway, I think that a lot. So, flu, when you get it, you infect or you pass it on to 1.3 to 1.4 people. Let's say it's 1.4, right? Mm. And the coronavirus, you pass it on to three people. 
that doesn't seem like that much of a difference, right? Yeah. Now, when you pass it on to 1.4 people, and then they pass it on to 1.4 people, and while at the same time the coronavirus has been passed on to three, and then they pass it on to three, mm-hmm. once you do that 10 times, so 1.4 to the power of 10 is 28.9. So after 10 um, cases of it being passed on and passed on and passed on with the seasonal flu, you are responsible for around 29 cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now with the COVID-19, so we're going to do the same equation, three to the power of 10. Do you, do you have any idea what that is off the top of your head? But I've always been horrible at math, but I don't know, <laughs> somewhere between 50 and 100? This is mind-blowing. Three to the power of 10. So the same thing mm-hmm. with the coronavirus, you would be responsible for 59 thousand and forty nine cases. That was pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> How crazy is that? Damn. I mean, yeah, I I, I remember hearing about like the uh, when in terms of differences like how infectious how in, yeah. how infectious the 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 virus is, like how easily contagious it is. And also I guess one of the main uh um I mean, one of the things that distinguishes it from others and makes it potentially way more dangerous is the, I don't know if it would be the incubation period or how long it takes for you to show signs. I mean, I'm guessing with the flu, you know, you get someone sick and maybe like in a day or two days, you know, they're already showing symptoms like, you know, high fever or things like that. But Mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, coronavirus, I think it's like, you know, a week to two weeks to start showing symptoms. So, I mean, you could have, you know, a whole bunch of people potentially infecting others and others and others. And, you know, I I guess that span of time complicates things so much more than you would think. And that's why, I mean, one of the reasons why it makes it more uh, dangerous and, uh, yeah. It is. That is definitely one of the things. And one of the other things is uh, once once you've had the coronavirus, if it affects you and makes you sick, Mm because it doesn't make everyone sick, even though they can still infect others, Mm -hmm. um, it, it has permanent... It, it, permanent damage to your to your lungs even to people who uh, don't have like oh really like people who don't no, show I, bad symptoms uh no no i think it's it's to people who who it, it does make them sick mm-hmm. you they they get permanent damage to the lungs but even people who don't like develop a severe case i think so yeah i could be talking out of my ass right now but i'm pretty sure i've heard that on a few occasions and read it somewhere yeah it's tough and people have to start taking it seriously. <laughs> seriously, man. Did you hear that, you know, Mother's Day, it was Mother's Day, was it yesterday in the UK? There were people going to the f-ing beach in like groups of 10 people and the beach, like the beaches were full. Yeah, and in, in the US, there's a severe case of negligence as well, man. <laughs> I mean, it's, there, it's it's, I think it's spring break, right? So people are, I mean, you have the, these massive crowds of young people still going to like Florida or... I don't know, other areas where they used to go for spring break. And I mean, nothing has changed really in that regard. And my, yeah. I have a cousin who lives in New York and he says that, you know, people are still out in the streets. I mean, so a lot of them have masks, but there's still a bunch of people out in the streets. The metros are still crowded. There's two reasons why it's gone to where it is now in, in terms of a global pandemic. I'm, I'm going to extend it to three reasons. Firstly, in China and in Asia in general, 
they're they're used to this. You know, they've had the SARS in two thousand three, two thousand four, uh, that outbreak, which really damaged them. And and they know, you know, once there's a a viral outbreak, to take it seriously because it it does damage. So that's that's number one. The second thing is it's uh it's invisible. You know, if this were something that people could see, like just I know it sounds silly, but if 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 it were were monsters that you could see in the street, people would obviously take that more seriously, even if they weren't as dangerous. And the 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 last thing is the Chinese government is strong, and people listen to them, and they're a little bit scary sometimes. And <laughs> you can't say the same for other governments in the world. China actually did a really good job containing the virus. I mean, obviously it got out and it was always going to get out. You can't stop it from getting out of, you know, one of the biggest countries in the world. They actually contained it really well because when the government says everyone stay home, Chinese citizens don't fuck about, they stay home. Unfortunately, when the US says that, when the UK says that, you still get the, you know, teenagers, like you said, going to spring break or people not taking it seriously because what's the government going to do? The government's not going to put you in jail or shoot you. Whereas in other places in the world, they would. It's a very different type of government. I mean, at least the difference. I think that in the in the US, they haven't like actually imposed quarantine, have they? Or maybe on certain states. Yeah, they are in certain states. Mm-hmm. That's right, but not overall. Yeah. Um. I mean, here Peru is just a completely different animal because I mean they did impose quarantine, and if you, I mean, you can you're restricted. Uh, you cannot go out between like eight p.m. and and five a.m. And still a lot of people do. I mean, it's just there's not that much fear of like authority here as there is in other countries. I haven't seen that many people out past 8 p.m. though around my area. Have you seen a lot around your area? Uh, no, in my area, no. I mean, also, I just, you know, I have a, a very restricted view from my window. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I mean, from, from, from the news and just a lot of viral videos that are coming about, obviously there are also like certain districts here in Peru you know, that are uh, very well known for like, I don't know, high crime rates or things like that. And it, it just uh, a lot of them are areas where like, I think the police doesn't even, you know, have access to, <laughs> or they have access yeah. to those areas, but they don't even go in there because they're just that dangerous. It, it, it seems a little difficult for, I, I find it hard to believe that they would actually have like, that they're able to, not only just to, if they want to, but if like actually in, a, in an actual sense of capacity, if they, if they have like the manpower to, you know, supervise all these areas, even the like remotest ones, and actually see if people are going out or not. I, I mean, I, I don't doubt like they put most of their effort in specific districts, you know, so that it's also, uh, I mean, so that their presence can be felt somewhat. But I don't know if it's uh, if it's that thorough. Stay home, stay safe, stay calm. Um. So what <laughs> what did we come here to talk about? Uh, yeah. What What do you think about Whiplash, man? <laughs> Yeah, it was all right. All right, see you next week, guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's talk about Whiplash. Whiplash. Um, how many times have you seen Whiplash now? I think it was like two or three times, and I would like to say that yeah. I would have made it like a fourth time <laughs> this past week, but I've not been able to. <laughs> So I'll just... uh, (laughs) You're going off memory. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going off memory, man. 
Uh, <laughs> I feel like somebody was saying like, yeah, I'm jumping off a plane, man. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it recently. Um, I think for the third or fourth time. Um, one thing I did want to ask you is, have you seen the, the short film? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Okay. How does it compare? Uh, it's, from what I remember, it's exactly the same as the scene we see in a movie. I mean, it's pretty much just mm-hmm. the scene we see in a movie, but, uh, I mean, that's it, and that's a short film. I mean, I know that he made that. I forgot who it was. Stanley Tucci? No. It was, a, like, a filmmaker or an actor, and they got a hold of him, and then they were like, yeah, you should, uh, you should pitch it, and uh, I forgot the whole story. I, I remember I knew the story because I was mm-hmm. kind of interested in how he got, like, the movie made. Uh, I know he studied in Harvard, and uh, right. I don't know if he graduated or not, but... Uh, and, and, and yeah, one small thing. I do have to clear up something I said in the last podcast because I said that this was okay. his... Um, that he had made three movies so far and he actually made four movies so far. Okay. Because his first movie, he made it uh, in college and it's called uh, Guy and Madeline at a Park Bench, which is sort of like a musical as well. I haven't seen it. In 2009, that was, I'm reading here. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so then he did the Whiplash short in 2013 and the year after he uh, released Whiplash Whiplash. Yeah. Um, so I haven't seen the short, but I've uh, seen parts of it. And did you know that they actually lifted scenes from the short and put them into the into the feature length? Oh, sorry, not scenes. I mean shots. Are really shots from the actual short film are, are in the movie? Yeah, just color graded and fixed up. Uh, one thing in particular was in the, because JK Simmons was in the short as well. Mm-hmm. JK Simmons plays Fletcher, the, the abusive teacher, who I'm sure we have a, a lot to say about. Um, there's a, there's a line where he says, I think in, in the, in the screenplay in the, sorry, in the script, it says, I will, he says, I will gut you like a pig. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what he says when they shot it again. The uh, the feature length, he says, "I'll gut you like a pig." But in the short, he actually says, "I'll f- you like a pig," uh-huh. and they lifted that and put it in the feature length. So if you look, if you go to that shot and you see uh, J.K. Simmons saying, "I'll f- you like a pig," to Andrew, mm-hmm. he's actually talking to a different actor because it was a, it wasn't Miles Teller in the short. So it wasn't like, uh, I, I thought when you, when you meant they lifted shots, I thought it was just like a shot of the, I don't know, like a close-up of like a like a stand or an instrument or something like that. It was an actual shot of J.K. Simmons, like screaming yeah, I, something. I think that might, yeah, that might have been the only like um, dialogue shot uh-huh. that they that they lifted. Mostly, yeah, it was just uh, the close-ups and stuff. And do you know why, why they did that? Did they like prefer that shot didn't do it in the movie and they decided to uh add it in there or i don't know why but i would i I mean we can only guess that they just preferred that line and for uh, i just remember hearing off the top of my head it was either jk simmons or the director that at at the time when they were filming they didn't want to say you like a pig they wanted to say gut you like a pig but then i guess in post-production they decided you know you know what this fits better yeah it has a nice ring to it Yeah, it's a good way to answer the phone. <laughs> so, what do you what do you think of Fletcher? <laughs> Big question. 
Uh, yeah, he was <laughs> he was a very interesting, very compelling character. Uh, J.K. Simmons does a great job. I mean, he does a great job in anything he's in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. That's it. That's all you have to say about Fletcher. Oh, Fletcher. Not got any insights into his, you know, abusive character. Uh, Is he a good teacher? Is he really <laughs> the bad guy? I mean, do do I think whether like like his ends justify his means? Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe like an idealistic younger version of myself would say yeah you know of course it does because he's like striving for perfection and eventually mm-hmm. you know within the within the premise of the story he's uh, the, the movie he eventually reaches it with this you know through this kid but again that would yeah. be like a much younger version of myself so what would you say now now i would uh <laughs> i mean the thing is it, it's uh it's like what in new age terms you would call a toxic relationship. Uh, of course, in the sense, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, between like partners. Uh, it, it can be any type of dynamic. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would, I would think that's what I would call that type of relationship. And it's always, you know, it's never one person who calls the shots. It's, you know, two people. So, I mean, the, the kid has like a, like a sadistic need <laughs> to fulfill the desires of of this master teacher uh mentor whatever you want to call it so it's not yeah. necessarily like i feel bad for the kid i guess i see what you're saying and every time i've watched it i've thought yeah that's a bit much fletcher but at the same time you know like you i've kind of thought that the end does justify the means he says it himself when he says never really had a charlie parker But I tried. I actually f-ing tried. And that's more than most people ever do. And I will never apologize for how I tried. Um, and there's a lot of his a lot of his quotes uh, refer back to this story of this, you know, obviously uh, iconic jazz musician who had the symbol thrown at his head, right? You know, Charlie Parker became Bird because Jones threw a symbol at his head. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's tough because he's obviously abusive and you just can't treat a student like that no matter who you are, no matter what you think you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is abuse. But I don't know. I would definitely thrive in that kind of, under that kind of um, mentorship, <laughs> for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. It, it, it kind of reminds me a bit of uh, Gordon Ramsay. Mm-hmm. And you could argue that, you know, Gordon Ramsay's only like that for the camera because uh, he's obviously abusive and he, you know, he throws shit at his staff and he screams at them and he personally attacks them and stuff, just like a lot like Fletcher does. But he creates, you know, incredible chefs and he, people who work for him more often than not say that they took a lot from, from working with him. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's, it's not so much like this is this is controversial to say maybe it's not so much a story of um oh this poor student you know he he got abused by this teacher maybe it's more a story of uh this poor teacher is repressed and can't make what he wants to make he can't be left alone to create what he wants to create what he knows you know the potential he sees in this guy he's not allowed to um, exploit that potential in a way that that would create this uh, iconic musician. 
because of the way that society views his methods. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Well, one thing to to definitely take into account is you know in movies, as in real life, you know there there are no villains. I mean, he is equally the hero of the story as as the other guy is. You know, I guess obviously you know the movie takes it to I mean uses the most extreme examples so that you can have you know these uh, like polar opinions. You know, I mean, the, the guy went to a point where he, you know, he pressured this kid so much that the kid actually killed himself. And, yeah. you know, he didn't bat an eye. He st- still tried to look for his protege somewhere else. But, I mean, it, it it intentionally does that so that, you know, the audience is like, okay, either, you know, f*** this human being because he's just, you know, a horrible piece of s***. Or, men, you know, I mean, he does whatever he needs to do to get the job done. And then, Yeah. And, 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 uh, do you know what? Now that you said, now that you mentioned that, that really trumps everything i've said the fact that he did push a guy a kid to kill himself yeah that's pretty fucked up and i kind of take back what i said about <laughs> him being you know a genius <laughs> no but i mean it, it, it does find that balance well because i think at, at the end of the day once you know you have people leaving the movie who you know either either think one way or the other you've you know you've done your job and and yeah at a certain point i i, I did you know think yeah the guy you know he did his job, man. I mean, he, he did whatever he had to do to get the next Charlie Bark. I, I, I do justify not, you know, the guy's behavior, but I do justify, like, the modus of the character so we can have that absolutely beautiful ending, which is just, uh, it's just pure cinema. That's oh, something yeah. that, like, again, I saw, I guess, with, with Parasite and a lot of sequences. I know we didn't see eye to eye in that, but in, in, at least in this, like, the end scene, when I first saw that, I, I just... Andrew, what are you doing, man? I'll kill you! I don't know, very few times, again, I, I, I'm, I'm just left, uh, like, uh, mouth agape, you know, completely awestruck by seeing something like that. So, so tell me, what is it about the end scene? Because I, I loved the end scene, but I don't think I could kind of analyze it in the same way that you could. What is it about it that makes it so brilliant? To simplify it, and without like overanalyzing it, it's telling something without having the characters talk. Mm. Using the visual medium to like its maximum level, and, and actually telling a story visually. And I know, I mean, the end, it's literally, you know, the guy just, you know, playing the drums. You have this little thing where he doesn't approve of it, but then, you know, he sees that he's really into it. And then, you know, he plays phenomenally and the guy supports him and that's where the movie ends. But that whole play, I mean, yeah, this goes beyond like the editing, which I'm sure we're going to get into and, you know, talking about how great Mm -hmm. it is and all that. But it's just, uh, it's just a visual spectacle. I mean, the gestures, everything, and... uh, I guess one of the things that I've always believed about movies, ever I guess ever since I became like passionate about films, and hopefully wanting to make some one day, is that I, I think the the art form that comes closest to the feeling of of a movie is music, and that's why I think mm-hmm. editing is so essential. It's like the one aspect about filmmaking that is the closest to music, and I mean. Yeah. 
besides the fact that the movie is about music and about a musician, you know, it, it just has a rhythm that you very rarely see in movies. And it, it has a style that is very well suited to the actual story, like an actual style of storytelling, you know, the quick cuts, the rhythm of the, mm -hmm. of the, of the editing. Um, so it's like one of those movies where I would say, you know, style and substance are, you know, right on par. Nail on the head. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, <laughs> even though I wouldn't have put it so eloquently. The last scene is it's poetry. And I think that scene and also the scene, which was um, basically the short film, mm -hmm. uh, where it gets really, really intense in that room. And they have, I think that's the same scene where they have the three drummers kind of taking turns. Yeah. We will stay here for as long as it takes until one of you can play in time. One and two and like that might be all night. Neiman, one and two and... Not my tempo! And it just gets rough. The, the quick quick shots... One thing that I did notice as well about the... The, the camera work is amazing. Like the close-ups that they do and the focus at the right times and everything. That shouldn't be left unsaid. Yeah. And it has this... Uh, just the lighting. I think it's very particular with the movie. It, it even seems like... Uh, I don't have to call it Baroque, but it's... Uh, there's a very sort of like I don't know. It reminded me somewhat of like uh, the photography in the in the Godfather, and I know like the movies are completely different, but it's just uh, I guess the way it was lit, the how like they yeah. raised like the the warm tones in the movie overall. It might also be yeah. because Fletcher's head was really uh, <laughs> reflective. Reflective, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, now that you say that, I can definitely see the comparison. I think the was so golden. You know? Yeah, exactly. I think that's the yeah. precise word. Although it was so green as well at the same time. I didn't I don't know. I don't know why it was so green. Really high contrast greens and, and oranges throughout. The greens at least like not in the parts where they're playing music, right? Like maybe in like the scene where he's with uh with his family or out on a date yeah. with his girlfriend. That's right. So the editing the editing is really good pretty good <laughs> a lot of a lot of people talk about the editing in whiplash and um, i'm a big fan of the editing uh, so it's so rhythmic and and you know what people don't talk much about and i think it really needs to be said the sound editing as well that's right not just the you know the visual cuts and everything but it must be so difficult to edit the sound with dialogue because the scenes where he's playing and they've got him screaming and, and the, the bands come in and it's so reliant on, on um, perfect sound edit in these, these scenes, you know, that's right. I, that's something I, I mean, sound has always been something that like the majority of people, you know, put on like a backdrop when they're talking about movies. Mm. But, I mean, it's such an overlooked aspect and I guess this movie uh, is just a great example of how it's uh such like an essential part of films in general. We should one day do a list of like just thanking everyone for a film. You know, thanks for holding the boom mic, Johnny. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's a question for you: mm -hmm. Who took the folder? Yeah, I remember we or you you mentioned it. I have no idea to be honest with you. I mean, I think some people think it was Fletcher. Yeah. Who do you think took the folder? I'm torn between it being Fletcher and the other drummer Tanner. But that would be Tanner sabotaging himself. You know, maybe he's sabotaging himself, or it looks like he's sabotaging himself so that he can blame it on on Neiman, so that he can mm -hmm. get Neiman kicked out. 
Yeah. And then he's he remains the core drummer. Or that, that apparently there's a telltale sign as to why people think it's um it's Fletcher. When he tells Fletcher, when Tanner tells Fletcher that he's lost his folder, he says, Neiman lost my folder. I gave uh, Neiman the folder and Neiman lost it. Neiman lost it. So this is, this is done really well. And the, the director hasn't said either way who, who took the folder. And it's a key part of, of the whole film. So you have the evidence that supports that it was Tanner. Tanner says, he goes in and he says, Neiman lost my folder. So he's using it as an excuse right away, which shows that could have been the plan. He says he then says to Fletcher, which is a really odd thing for him to say. He says, "I need the book. You know, I need visual cues. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't. You can't. I, I, I can't go on stage. I don't know the charts uh, by heart. Are you kidding me? I, 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 you know this. I need the music. It's my memory. I, I, I need visual cues. Visual cues. So this maybe says, um." Fletcher already knew that he needed the book and can't play without it. That's why he took it away, so that he could just get rid of him and get Neiman. I think that would make more sense. Yeah, but now I think like Fletcher doesn't want Tanner. He doesn't have to take his book. He'll just tell him to f*** off. If anything, the ambiguity is well set up. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's another theory that it was um, it was actually Neiman's dad. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, did you know that, I'm sure you knew, Miles Teller is actually playing the drums in, in all of the scenes. Is he really? I, I just know that Miles Teller was like, I know that he, I don't know if to call it got screwed up, but I mean, he did this movie. It went really well. I don't know if commercially, but at least uh, critically, it went really well for Chazelle and, you know, everybody involved. And then, you know, he was able to make La La Land, which was like his dream movie, I guess, uh, before he became a filmmaker. Yeah. And I think he was going to, he was going to cast, you still haven't seen it? La La Land, no. Ah, I thought you watched it. But he was going to cast Miles Teller in the role of Ryan Gosling. And then out of nowhere, he was like, no, I'm going to cast Ryan Gosling. I remember reading somewhere that he was just really pissed off about that. Yeah, because he, he sorted him out, man. He gave him an amazing performance in Whiplash. Yeah. And he played the f***ing drums like a, well, not like a pro. He is a pro. He's unbelievably good on the drums, man. I mean, yeah, I could only talk as like someone who has no discernible musical talent whatsoever. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, to me, he seems pretty good. But I mean, you you are a musician, so if you say he's really well, good, then I can only take your word for that. I wouldn't say I'm a musician, but um, I've you know I, I used to play the drums, not by like nowhere near um, what Miles Teller plays. It wasn't kind of jazz drumming or anything like that, but. You know, the the references to drummers that they make, like uh, especially Buddy Rich, mm-hmm. he was someone that I used to watch a lot of and I was just always enthralled by his playing. Like Miles Teller is, you know, like you see YouTube drummers and stuff. Mm-hmm. You, you, you probably have watched people drumming on YouTube, drumming along to songs or uh, studio drummers, drummers on on talk shows that, um, you know, playing in the background like Jimmy Fallon or something. Mm-hmm. This is my opinion. I think Miles Teller is way better than any drummer that the average person has seen because of his his technique. And, and jazz particularly is, I think, the hardest genre to play drums to because it's so, um, it takes soul, it does take real soul to play jazz and technique and skill. They talk a lot in the film of double time swing 
this is where you know he's hitting the the ride symbol really quickly with his right hand. I'm not, I'm not going to go too deep into, but not 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 only to not bore the listener, but so I don't trip myself up and get something technically wrong. But playing that um, in the in the time signature that he's playing it at the tempo that he's playing it at is crazy difficult. And he pulls it off. And what's what's funny is this film is about this this drummer mastering the drums and showing absolute divinity behind the set and being perfect with time and tempo and uh, showing that soul behind the kit as well. What you don't realise is Miles Teller, not Neiman, but Miles Teller, is actually doing that, but he's also messing it up which I think is more difficult. Yeah, I guess. I mean, to be really good at something and pretend like you're not. Yeah, exactly. That's like music. I don't know. It's like acting that we've never seen before. Like pretending that you can't play an instrument when you're actually amazing at it. Well, I mean, I think he was like a big, a bigger star than the, than the kid who played it. I mean, his character in the short film. But I mean, I, I don't doubt that that had a lot to do with like his casting decision. You know? Yeah, I, I actually don't know like what he did. Uh, before that, like I've never heard of him and stuff, but I I have seen an, an article on the New York Post. Just read the headline, I'll be honest, but it says how Miles Teller learned to fake drum like a pro in Whiplash. And I've literally just seen that right now, and that makes me upset. <laughs> uh, so he wasn't like a pro drummer before. <laughs> I mean, it might be like the Ryan Gosling thing in La La Land, because um, from what I remember reading, he didn't know how to play the piano at all. And then um, they gave him like three months of classical piano training before the movie. I think it was like John Legend. I don't, I don't know what. Yeah, I think it was John Legend because he was in a movie who said like he just picked it up so naturally and he became like like absurdly good for the amount of time he just practiced it. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe Damien Chazelle has like a knack of getting people who are just naturally good with instruments. Oh, man. I'm just reading like flicking through this article now and I'm, my heart's breaking. I can't believe I didn't find this before. Miles Teller is a... Uh, like he he played the drums before, but he wasn't any kind of pro. And he was taught how to play technical jazz by someone for the film. And it's basically the editing and stuff that makes him look better than he is. No, I don't. I, I can't take it. <laughs> that's too difficult, man. Because that's such a damn precise thing. And some of the shots are a lot. Nah, I don't believe that. Well, now that you're telling me, maybe, maybe I'm I'm recollecting wrong, but I remember reading somewhere that they used like a hand model, like a hand actor for a lot of the close-ups. No, <laughs> I knew it, man. You can't be that talented. You can't be that good on the drums and that good of an actor. It's just not. That's what they call possible. movie magic, man. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Well. Well, maybe I'm wrong again. I might be. I might be remembering it correctly. Mm, I guess we'll update people on the next one. Or people, you know what, guys? You've got Google. If you're in lockdown. Just, just f- Google it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like thirty <laughs> listeners to zero in like a span of like five minutes. <laughs> no, we'll update you guys. We'll update you guys. I'll, I'll do research. I'll edit my voice in, and here it comes now. Here I am, following through, checking in from the editing room. I did a bit of research everyone and I actually found some conflicting articles and videos and interviews so Miles actually says in the Jimmy Fallon show which you can listen to now that he is playing the drums this movie Whiplash yeah. uh, you play a young drummer uh, in, in the film and it has to be really you playing 
Oh yeah, I mean, I, I started playing when I was when I was 15. You know, I got a drum set because I thought, you know, I played piano and saxophone and that was cool. But as I started getting older, I was, I was like, oh man, the drummers, you know, the coolest guys, Quest knows. It's just like, yeah. You just but then I watched a video of him playing the drums and it didn't sound as good, not nearly as good as in the film. go with it's Miles. It's Miles playing the drums. I don't want to have my dreams crushed. I believe him, take his word for it. And also where he's playing is just sat down on a brand new drum set that he's never sat at before. And it was kind of, you know, out of nowhere. So that's really difficult. But what else do you think is worth mentioning in this film? I guess like aside from the, the things that stand out the most, um, this this is something like I, I, I gathered from a lot of interviews with with Damien Chazelle. He has, I guess, what I would call, like, interesting ideas as a filmmaker, especially, like, as a young filmmaker who has, you know, uh, gotten in the industry at a very particular time, like, when very high-quality television shows are coming out and, like, the movie industry is seeing sort of, like, a... kind of, like, a big hurdle down the road. And, um, I mean, he... I remember him saying that, like, he thinks that filmmakers should do more to try to entice or lure viewers back into movie theaters like give them a reason you know to actually go into a movie theater and watch and watch a movie there instead of you know i'll just turn on netflix and see what's good in there and Mm. um i guess with this in mind he's he like he's a big believer in the idea that you should start with something big and you should end with something big basically uh if you start with something not necessarily flashy but something that impacts the viewer uh you at least entice them to stay uh I guess until like the story gets rolling and things like that, and then you know, end it with a bang. And uh, I mean, yeah, you can definitely see that. For example, in this movie, again, when when you when when you watch La La Land, you'll you'll get that same idea because it 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 seems like it's just like a, become like a trade for this filmmaker. Uh, I don't, I don't right. necessarily think it's a bad thing. No, I think uh, he has again interesting ideas. He's a like a young, fresh filmmaker. Um, mm. I don't know if everything he'll do is will be music related. He sort of broke that strain with um, that pattern with First Man, going back into it with this, like the new movie he's going to come out with, maybe like a year or two years. I think that it's, it's an interesting method of storytelling, uh, you know, having the, I guess, the climax at the beginning and at the end as well. So I think uh, I actually have a list of films that I want to cover and they're not all my suggestions. We've had a few suggestions from uh, people. So I think we can start ticking them off. But the next one I really wanted to do, and I finally watched it, is Lighthouse. Are you down next time? Yeah, man. We can do the Lighthouse. Okay. Well, uh, that's it from us at Film Couch. Thank you very much for listening. As always, you can write into filmcouchpodcast at gmail.com if you've got any questions or suggestions, or you just want to say hello, or whatever, just send us an email. And uh, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Nicola. Take care. Thanks for listening. Uh, Stay safe. Stay at home. Um, Sorry we didn't talk too much about the film in the beginning. We covered a lot of current events, and we apologize if that was not quite your tempo.
Thing. It reminds me a little bit of the social network. Does he reveal his uh, lizard form? <laughs> <laughs> if, if they did that, then the movie would have would have been in like my top five. <laughs> <laughs> just at the end, you just see a little tongue, <laughs> or he blinks sideways, or like the, yeah. the eyelids like vertical. <laughs> yeah. Now that I'd watch, I might watch it and just imagine that that happens at the end. <laughs>